0: Thanks, guys. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming today if you're brand new. Uh, glad to have you guys in one of our services. We are in the Book of Acts uh, right now. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you know where that is, it's uh, kind of back third of, of the uh, Bible after the, the Book of John. You can go ahead and turn there. Uh, but here we are, Book of Acts. Uh, we um, have been here for a number of months. We'll finish up before Christmas. Uh, a lot to get to, though, still. Some of the best parts are still ahead um, Acts is a book about Jesus, as is the whole Bible, and a book about what transpires after His resurrection and ascension. So uh, if that kind of helps get your, uh, get your bearings on the timeline of the whole thing. That's great. Uh, but Jesus died on a cross for our sins. He rose again, He ascended to heaven. And then after that he spent 40 days with people, uh, basically hanging out with them, showing him how he was the point of the whole Old Testament. He proved himself to these people, saying, I am really here, I'm not a ghost, but I'm actually with you, having breakfast with you, eating fish and bread, talking with you, you can touch my scars, I'm the real Christ, who really died, really took his last breath, really was buried, and now who is really uh, risen again. Then he ascends and sends the Holy Spirit into the hearts, uh, the empty vessel hearts of people like us. Sinners who didn't deserve to be filled with God himself, but who were. And who then preached the gospel, they preached the historical theology of the fact that God came into the world to rescue us. So Christianity and history are inextricably tied together. Always remember that. This is not mythology. This is not moral lesson time or ethics time. This is about historical theology of a God who made this earth, the physical matter in our universe, and made our bodies, and who actually took on one of our bodies himself when he sent his son to come into the world to rescue it from, like the song said, uh, like a pendulum swinging over to the shadows, which is what we all did when we rebelled against our creator. So it's basically kind of a little bit of a synopsis of the whole Bible, actually, right there. But, but with Acts in mind, um, this, is, this is what it's about. It's about the church being born and how it spreads all the way throughout the Roman Empire and the story of that. So this is real history written by a guy named Luke. Uh, and one of the main characters is Paul, who was a former Christian murderer who turned Christian because Jesus appeared to him and saved him from his sins, from his murderous intent. And uses him now to spread the gospel to non-Jewish people, though he's a a Jewish Christian now, but to non-Jewish people called Gentiles. And all along, we're learning a ton about theology, about God, about Jesus, about the church, about the gospel, about church planting, the the practice of starting new churches in in cities and other areas alike, church leadership, how that all works, evangelism, tons of stuff like that topically as well has kind of come up. But it's mostly about Christ and how he's re-imaged in the church. Uh, this, is, uh, this is, the, the Bible is a beautiful uh, kind of conglomeration or mix between the, the history, the facts, the, the what's of what's happening and the symbols as well of the Christ who is in the, the apostles. It's not just the people, it's the Christ in the people. And so he is there whispering his story, whispering his passion, which is Latin for suffering, the passion of the Christ, whispering that through the sufferings of the church as well. And so we've been we've been kind of keen in on that along the way too, as we've as we've gone gone along. Alright, so today we're reaching the end of the book. Paul, this guy I mentioned before, is an apostle, a sent one. He he is getting to Jerusalem today. So we've been seeing and talking about how he has kind of set his face toward Jerusalem. Uh, he knows he needs to go, he wants to go, but God is sending him as well to preach the gospel to these same Jews he used to work with to kill Christians is that crazy? He used to work with a band of Jewish people who used to kill believers. Now he was saved. He was kind of scattered out and he's been all over Asia Minor and into the uh, Greece and, and all over into Syria. And now he's going back to this area where he knows people want to kill him because the Jews hate this guy. Now they, they think he's just a traitor, sellout. They want to kill him. And, but he's going back there in, in love. He wants to go and preach the gospel to these same people that they might become what he is. A former just... Sinner, well, still sinner, but a former Christian murderer, uh, a, a, a sinner, one of, the, one of the darkness who's being made of the light, who's becoming a child of God like, like he is. So he's going to go do that. A little more on that next week in terms of what he actually says. But before that, we're going to see today how he's arrested by these Jews. And before that, uh, how he connects initially in the city with other Jewish Christians. So first he's going to connect with Jewish Christians there, and there's going to be something going on there. We'll talk about and then he's going to be arrested, and we learn some theology there, too, um, which is second. All right, so let's read Acts 17, 17 to 36. This will be on screen here, too. If you want to just follow along there, that would be great. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed here. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men... And purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses, so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, referring to the temple. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. When they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another, and as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. All right, so uh, if you have not been here for Acts so far, this is a very common theme on repeats, right? Christians just getting dragged into mobs and away from mobs and miraculous kind of deliverances from them in a way, uh, kind of in response to the preaching of the gospel and the offense that's taken at this. We'll talk about this yet again today and some kind of unique things that, that are said here. Uh, but also some unique things today with this exchange that Paul has with James, the, actually the, the half-brother of Jesus. This is not James... The disciple, he was killed in chapter 12, remember, beheaded by Herod, so he's already been martyred. Uh, this is a different James. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is a leader or an elder or pastor in the Jerusalem church, all right? So he's there. He's kind of saying, that he's, he's saying to Paul um, that he needs to kind of do some things and observe the law in a way that will be a little less offensive to Jewish Christians and, and so forth. So we'll, uh, we'll come back to that here in just a second. We will start with that. I I will kind of repeat this, though, just for clarity, because it's a weird start to the passage. Uh, The the first thing we'll look at today, and I have three things. The first thing is Paul, loving, recovering law embracers. So Paul is loving, recovering law embracers, Christians, uh, Jewish Christians in this this sense, who are uh, recovering lawyers, essentially. All right, so just to summarize what's going on here then, so when Paul gets to Jerusalem, I was saying this a little bit before, but he's quickly connecting before he's arrested with Jewish Christians and basically saying God is moving among the Gentiles. And it says they glorified God. These Jewish Christians are happy about this and there's, there's a reason for that. They're at the end of themselves. They're not competing with these people. They understand grace. If they didn't understand grace, they would probably be more offended at the Gentiles, which is what happens after this, Remember? when these Jewish uh, people who are not Christians yet get offended at this Greek who supposedly went into the temple. Kind of have that in mind as we go here in a second. But these Jewish Christians are happy about it. And so they share stories and Paul's sharing all these war stories and things that God was doing. And then James and his other elders uh, share what is happening there. So they share with Paul how God's been moving there in the city too amongst the Jews. They say thousands of Jews are being saved as well. And so isn't that awesome? It's kind of like, you know, a couple of missionaries different parts of the world coming together or um, from wherever they live, whatever kind of their role in, in ministry. And they're sharing stories and they're saying, um, look what God is doing. Look what God is up to. And thousands of people are being saved in different parts of the world. Let's celebrate that, that together. All right, here's what's going on though. But then they say to Paul that, um, that there's ongoing confusion for Jewish Christians over how exactly the Old Testament law relates to Jesus Christ, to the New Testament, and to their lives. There's confusion for Jewish Christians over how they now relate to with their lives, but also how Jesus and the New Testament relates to Old Testament law that preceded all of this. So that James is basically saying, all these Jewish Christians are, are being said, let's celebrate that, but they've believed the gospel but they're still zealous for the law. And they're hearing, Paul, that you preach against the law and the temple and other Jewish customs for the sake of preaching Christ's grace. And this, of course, was true. Paul, by preaching Christ, was showing how the old laws had found their finish line in Jesus. So things like Sabbaths and food laws and temple rituals, the entire sacrificial system, washings, and even the Ten Commandments had been abrogated and the conditionality that surrounded them covenantally for the sake of Jesus' New Testament. So to put it more simply, in other words, it's no longer do this and you will live, to quote from Leviticus 18.5, which is what the Old Testament says about the Old Testament, do these things and then you will live. See the conditionality in that? It's no longer that, but believe in Jesus and call upon him and you will live. Trust in the fact that he shed his blood for you. This is a big argument in Romans 10. If you want to go back and read this kind of in like a greater context in one of the letters of the New Testament, read Romans 10, 4 to the end of the chapter basically, but start in in verse, uh, or 5, in verse 5. All right, so this is of course true on, on, on one level. Paul was preaching Christ and showing how these things found their finish line. In fact, back in Acts 15, Uh, Which they quote here, James and the elders quote this and cite this to Paul. They remind Paul that they did this too. They sent a letter to Gentile, non Jewish Christians outlining this reality. They said, Believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, because there was an issue over Gentiles wondering, do we need to keep any of these Old Testament laws now that we're Christian? Like, what are we under? How do we understand how the Bible sort of hangs together here? The scriptures hang together and how they find their finish line in Jesus. And so the letter basically said, believe in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Abstain from sexual immorality. You're a new creation. Live like your body belongs to God, not just to you. So live like that because that's what Christians believe. It's partly what the gospel is, is coming to, to, to terms with that. So abstain from sexual immorality and then keep away from a few food-related things that would have offended other Jewish believers they were likely in churches with. And so it's probably a little bit weird to see that if it's the first time when you're seeing this, but whenever it says that these Christians were instructed to not eat things that were strangled, or these are Old Testament laws, or to stay away from the blood of the meat, uh, like uh, the the raw forms of it. This is an Old Testament thing for a time for a reason that I can't go into for time's sake today, But what James is saying here is when that letter was written to Gentile Christians like us, they're not actually saying, oh yeah, just you're under a few of these like really odd obscure food laws. They're not saying you're actually under them anymore. They're saying just like follow them for the sake of the Jewish Christians among you. They're having a hard time seeing how they've become abrogated. In love, just don't eat that stuff. Even though you're free to, just don't do it. And so basically all they're saying is believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, abstain from sexual immorality, and then love people who are a little bit different from you doctrinally on minor levels, and uphold love for the sake of the church. And so this then is why these Jewish Christians, to go back to Paul and what's going on in today's passage, this is why these Jewish Christians ask Paul to temporarily observe a few purity laws in the temple so as to appear like he was moving towards them spiritually, because he wanted to. He's, he's a brother with them. To not initially be unnecessarily offensive and weird, and to create a context for him to continue to share about how Jesus taught us to observe his death and resurrection and, rather than the law. Because this is what Jesus just does. He says, I am the new law. He's saying, observe me. Observe my death. Observe my resurrection. Observe my grace rather than the law. And so Paul is like, and James and the elders are saying, so you can get there to have that conversation with them for a time, observe some of these purity laws so that they don't just kind of run for the hills because of um, how you're so much not doing that and how offensive that would be to them. And so Paul then actually follows their advice, right? As we read, we saw this. Paul says, uh, basically, or it's inferred that he says, that's a good idea. You're right. I should, I should do that. And he actually writes about this in one of his letters to the churches. In 1 Corinthians, basically it's chapter 8 through 10, uh, which obviously we can't really preach today for time's sake. It's way too much text. Uh, but he starts this whole argument there to a different church. It's a different context, but it's the same theology. Uh, he says, in that church, there's these kind of things happening. And he says, love is greater than knowledge. So a lot of times in the Christian life, even though we know what the right theological answer is, sometimes love is more important than that. And we'll see how that plays out here in a second, so just kind of hang tight. But he also says later in the the same section in chapter 9, I have, uh, or to those under the law, this is Paul speaking again, same guy. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. So you see how this is exactly what's happening here? Even though he's not under it as a Christian man anymore, even though he's Jewish, a Jewish Christian man, he became like one under it for a time, so he might, this is more, a more of an evangelistic thing, might win people, but in this case in Acts, that he might love other Christians and start to kind of bring them up out of immaturity with greater teaching. But as a stepping stone into that, he became temporarily like one under the law. So what this means is, he had, and Romans 14 uh, plays into this too, Uh, won't get into that today, but um, meaning, back in Acts, he had the right then to say, he had a right to say this to James, no, I won't take that vow. I won't take that Nazarite vow. I won't purify myself in the temple. I'm no longer under those passing shadow-like laws that never worked anyway or never saved me anyway, but I'm under Christ. And he had the right to say to these Jewish Christians who were still purifying themselves, why are you still purifying yourselves and not resting in the fact that God has purified you? See, that's the better theology. That's the New Testament theology. He had the right to say that. But he didn't immediately. Isn't that fascinating? He laid down knowledge for the sake of love here. He became like one under the law, temporarily, as a stepping stone to love these believers and then for those Jews that weren't Christians yet, to missionally reach them. Even though they freak out and don't really, that doesn't work, right? We'll get to that in a second. Uh, that's part of the goal here as well, but especially for the Jewish Christians. So instead what Paul does, this is another way to look at it, he takes on the Jewish Christians' immaturity. Paul is, like, taking on the Jewish Christians' like, theological immaturity in love so the main thing of Christ might be underscored and taught further later when he, like, had dinner with them or something or just taught them further. And so today, like, sometimes we, uh, we talk about this as a principle um, because it's different for us as mostly in the Roman guessing, if not entirely Gentile Christians or just Gentiles. Um, This is a different thing. And and there's a principle here, though, that comes up elsewhere, like in Romans 14. I put um, one verse in context up here. It comes up in Romans, uh, or um, yeah, 1 Corinthians 8-10 to and some other places as well. This is actually a big part of our New Testaments where letters are written to churches that have strong, mature Christians and some weaker, immature Christians. The strong ones are strong in freedom and grace, and the weak ones are less kind of um, grounded on freedom. And so Paul addresses this and says, in love, we need to talk about this. But the principle for us, and I just got to like skim over this for time's sake today, but a lot of times in the church, we talk about how the principle here for us has to do with things like foods or diets or recycling and other forms of earth care or rated R movies or alcohol or gambling or parenting philosophies. I could go on and on and on. The reality is, Christians are not saved or defined by any of those things. We are free in the gospel. We are free in the gospel to be vegan or to eat at McDonald's every day. We are free in the gospel to fast from food or to never fast from food again. We are free in the gospel to gamble or to serve as a counselor in Gambler's Anonymous. We are free in the gospel to care deeply about a certain certain diet or to eat any type of food put before us, to recycle or not, to watch rated R movies or not, to homeschool or public school our kids, to vote or not vote, to drink alcohol or not, to to smoke cigars or not. Now, some of those things might not be wise for us to do or might lead us into sin, and that's That's a different thing, though. That's obviously not okay then. But there is a freedom in morally neutral areas that Christians historically and biblically embrace for the sake of the gospel. So with this said, Christians then also, even though we recognize that, and this is going back to what Paul's doing here, with this said, Christians also lay these rights down. We lay these freedoms down in love For the sake of loving other Christians who might be weaker in knowledge or less free in these areas. They might really feel that one side of those polarities that I was laying out really is the right Christian way to live entirely. And they might have a really hard time with Christians who don't or might even judge them for not being where they're at with one of those things. Or maybe for the sake of reaching non-Christians, we might lay these freedoms down. Uh, We might, uh, for the sake of the gospel, we might also also do that missionally. And so it's kind of for both types of people. We might not eat meat with our vegan brothers and sisters in love, even though we know it's fine to, to do it. We might not drink with Christians who think it's wrong. We might start to embrace the values of our neighborhood for the sake of reaching those people and centralizing the cross, even though we don't, like, really have to. It's not, it's not the center. And so, just so that people might not be duped into thinking that Christianity is about anything else other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified and raised, we might, in love, kind of lay down knowledge. This is what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 8, kind of like he's writing this, he's teaching this, he's showing us this in Acts 21. And here's where the gospel is at, at the core of this. All of this is in the spirit of Jesus Christ himself who became like us to save us. See, this is not just about Paul being a picture of us giving us a ministry paradigm. It is that. But he's also a picture of Christ here who is the ultimate contextualizer. Christ became like us to save us, right? This is, this is a key part to what we talk about when we mean that he was incarnated. He became human. He spoke our language. So in Acts 21 then, like like Paul became temporarily more Jewish in, in, in a word than he really was, like he put himself under the law, so did Jesus, one, become like us in our humanity in order to speak our language and save us. And two, did he come under the law and bear its curses for us on the cross? He came under the law and, and wore it like a yoke. Even though he was coming to establish a New Testament, he came, was born under the law, Galatians 4 says, and under its curses. And that also is what Paul here is, is embodying. He's free from it, and yet he's temporarily bearing kind of the immaturity of it and the passing nature of it. How it's not about purifying yourself anymore. It's about God purifying us through the blood of Jesus. It's about bathing in the blood of Jesus Christ, and he gives us that. See, see how the one can point to the other by way of similarity and contrast? But this latter, that latter piece, is it's the new thing. It's the sun. And Paul walked in the shadows for a bit in love for, the, for these believers. Okay. Let's keep going. Oh, this is, there's more here. that's actually the, the, the bigger piece to this I want to talk about is, why were the non-Christian Jews so angry at Paul? All right. So the crowd here was sort of right and sort of wrong in their accusations. They, they exaggerated things, or maybe they were flat out wrong about things, like when they said Paul was bringing a Greek into the temple, this Trophimus guy. It seems to be the way Luke's writing this, that that actually didn't happen. Uh, we don't know for sure, but it seems like that was actually either a lie, or this had bad information, or they made assumptions about what, what he was doing. But As someone said before, a lot of lies originate in a truth. A lot of lies originate in a truth. And in this case, the truth was that Paul was speaking against the temple like Stephen did in Acts 7. Remember, were you guys here for that? When we read Stephen's speech, we preached through that. Same thing with Stephen. Paul was speaking against the temple. He was speaking against the law, against the old rituals. He was fighting those false claims that said Gentiles need to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses after they trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. They were Jesus plus law people. And and Paul's been preaching constantly against this. This is not just the council in Jerusalem, who were all Jewish men, preached against it with that letter, but Paul's been taking this message all the way through the Roman Empire. It's not Jesus plus, it's Jesus abrogates. It's Jesus ends or changes the old system to revolve around him now, what he does for us, not what we do for God. All right, so uh, he was fighting these things. He's preaching these things. He was forsaking Moses and all that came with that and how we're no longer, again, under a covenant that centers on our ability, ability, our failed abilities to do the commandments. So then when we ask this question, why are they so angry here? Why do they want to kill him? Have you guys ever wondered this when you read, this is not the first time we've seen this, of course, and it's not going to be the last, but have you ever wondered this when you read Acts? Like, have you ever thought, like, in your mind, that's an overreaction, you know? <laughs> that's like textbook overreaction, like, kill him, you know? And we think we get triggered today, right? Like, in life, like, oh my gosh, I can't even have one person say this word, I get triggered and I need my safe room. you know? Uh, but these people are totally doing this, right? They're like, I can't even talk to the guy. And so it's always been around. And so there's a lot of layers to this. Um, I want to talk about one piece to this, though. Uh, When we we ask the question, why the anger? Was it just because this was a disagreement about the Old Testament itself? As if it was an objective disagreement about principles and concepts? Or as if this was just a difference between a less progressive and a more progressive view of the Old Testament law? Is that what's going on here? Possibly in part, but not likely. And the reason is, it doesn't even come close to explaining the extreme, let's kill him anger. The mob that followed the soldiers who had to literally carry Paul in their arms. It was so insane. It doesn't explain that type of anger. Nor does it fit with the greater biblical storyline when it comes to why anger like this exists at all. So here's what I mean. These Jews weren't just angry over a disagreement about the nature of the Old Testament. They were angry at what Paul's preaching meant about themselves. They were threatened personally by the gospel because it meant that the works of their hands, their law-keeping abilities, didn't matter. They were threatened by a message that claimed that Christ replaced their good works, He replaced them with himself and his bloody body rather than patted them on the back for it. I mean, think about it. If this helps, think about it as though you were a track star. Maybe some of you are track stars. Actually, I know some of you are track stars. or You coach track, maybe. What's more offensive and angry to to someone who loves the sport of track and who's really, really good at it? Someone saying, I don't like track. That might be kind of hard, right? You'd be like, Really? I love track, but does that explain anger here going on in this passage? It doesn't, right? So what's more offensive? I don't like track or this statement. All of your medals mean nothing because there is now a new way to score runners. Or how about this? Someone has passed all of your records and they didn't train as hard as you did. Which is more offensive? Obviously the latter, right? Obviously. And this is, this is why, this is what's going on with the gospel. The gospel pokes at our self-righteousness in the bottom two ways. This is not just like an objective disagreement where the Old Testament's on a shelf over here and two of us are saying, I think it's green. And this person, oh, I think it's kind of blue. Huh, interesting. That's not what's going on. This is a threat to our self-righteousness to distract, star nature of how we view like medals and our efforts and all of our work. This is why the gospel is so offensive to them. Grace saved people. It didn't flatter people. That phrase came up during our Galatians series years ago and I've been using it ever since. Uh, The Bible mentions flattery. The gospel does not flatter us. It's not about flattering. It's the best news in the world. Best news in the world but the most humbling too. It doesn't flatter, it saves. The gospel's full of love, but unfair at the same time because love's not based on works, right? Do you, get, do you fall in love with someone and get married because they've done something good for you? No, right? I mean, at least good, good marriages don't, right? That, that's not the point. Love is unfair. Love is not based on works. It's just given, surprisingly, it just kind of comes to us. It's the same if you think, um, those of you who have read these, these stories before, uh, this theme's all over the Bible. It's the same with Jonah's anger at God for saving the undeserving Ninevites. Or the Pharisees, the religious Jews, anger at Jesus for dining with prostitutes but not hanging out with them. We're the academics, Jesus, Jesus. We've done more good than they have. Why are you eating with them? And they're angry because of it. It's the same thing. Or the older brother's anger at his father for throwing a party for the younger brother in Luke 15. Remember that parable? It's the same thing. Or Cain's anger at Abel. Or Demetrius' anger in Acts 19. Remember this from a few weeks ago? Demetrius' anger in Acts 19 and the statement, these Christians have the audacity to say the works of our hands aren't good enough. We could go on and on and on. The Jews are angry here, not based in a simple theological disagreement, but, based, but because grace threatened the works of their hands. It threatened their works-based religious mindset. Bad people are being saved. Good people are being passed over. All of our medals don't count for anything anymore. The center of the faith is a cross, a bloody cross, not a ladder to heaven that we can climb. Jesus is a savior, not a teacher. A savior, not a life coach. If Christ was on social media, he wouldn't like our pics as much as replace them with himself. These are hard things, right? But this is what's happening, and this is why they want to string him up. They can't handle it and this is why we get angry at the gospel this is why the gospel is offensive for us it's not flattering us for our good deeds it's replacing our good deeds with jesus not just saving us from bad deeds replacing good things that we've done with christ himself all right here's a here's a final question how so how exactly and in what way this is one thing we we have because the the text actually does suggest this so that's why we're doing it but it's also like not quite enough to say what we're saying. Like We have to ask, how exactly and in what way did Jesus do this? What exactly are we talking about here when we talk about grace and, and this gospel idea? This is more of the how. There's some what's here as well, but this is a little more, more of the how. This last piece, two chains and a payment. All right. So from verse 33, Then the tribune came up, and arrested Paul and ordered him to be bound with two chains. All right, so here's, here's a great interpretational question. You can ask about anything in the Bible. You guys have heard me do, do this a lot. I'll ask it again here. Where else in the Bible does this imagery come up? And how does its theological significance there point us to Jesus Christ? All right? And in this case, where, does, where else does two chains come up in the Bible? And, and the answer is in just one other place, all right? So, oh, I lost it there. The answer is in one other place. So we asked the question, where does two chains come up in the Bible? It's uh, else, elsewhere, and how does it sort of set the stage for this? Or how does the theology in that place uh, point us to, to Christ, all right? So the answer is here. This is the only other place it comes up. It's from Exodus 28, and I'll read it in context here, 12 to 14, but the answer is it's in reference to the Old Testament high priest's garb, the high priest's clothing in the Old Testament. The high priest was the one who would stand between God and people and help administer sacrifice and other things as well, but basically that. Aaron, who is in focus here, uh, Moses' brother, but also descendants of, of Aaron throughout the Old Testament. So here's what it says in Exodus 28. And you shall set two stones on the shoulder piece of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord and on his two shoulders for remembrance. You shall make settings of gold filigree and two chains of pure gold, twisted like cords, and you shall attach the corded change to the settings. All right, this is kind of what it looked like. Um, So that the... Chains are hard to see, but they're like right here. They're kind of holding up this um, this uh, setting here with all of these stones in the middle, which represent the twelve tribes of Israel. The chains are kind of right here over his over his shoulders. All right, so here's how all this is connected. Because so we could say that's really great, Chris, but so what? Um, this isn't a coincidence. Because why was it so important for Luke to record two chains anyway? Why was that so important? Paul is, by God's design, re the priestly garb of the high priest in order to demonstrate not only that in Christ we are all priests who have access to God through Jesus and who mediate in a way the non-believing world to God through our gospel message, but also to demonstrate Christ himself, the ultimate high priest who is also bound by chains and who himself was a sacrifice. And that last piece is huge. This is where things are different with Jesus and dialed up with Jesus. And and the closest, that sacrifice idea, and the closest place you see it with Paul is when he also pays the expenses of other men earlier. As a Christ figure, as a priestly Christ figure, he does this, which strikes to the core of what Jesus does on a higher level. He is, Jesus is the high priest, but he's also the payment for sin. He's also the sacrifice for sin. And so in Colossians 2.14, we see this, where it says Jesus literally paid our expenses, right? He canceled the record of our debt that stood against us, nailing it to the cross. So that's, part, that's partly how we understand what Jesus did for us. Is that we had a debt, a payment had to be made that we could not pay, it was too large, it was lifetimes, thousands of lifetimes of salary. Oh, and we're in prison too, so we can't work. So we have no hope of paying this off, but a debt was paid when that blood was spilt. That's why he became human. He could do that because he was human like us, dying in our place as a human for humans. God, the solution, God's son, the sacrifice. And Paul is reminding us here of this by bearing two chains like the high priest did. So, but to go back to Paul for a second, you know, Paul, Paul does not present before them like a judge or a teacher, you know, he's not adorned with or bound with a judge's robe or a high academic garb to suggest that he was or Christ was ultimately a judge or a teacher. Nor does he appear as a religious ascetic as if the point of Christianity was to harm ourselves for God. But he comes as a high priestly, sacrificial symbol of Jesus himself. One beaten, like the sacrifices of old. One laid hands on, as it said in Acts, like the scapegoats of old that were laid hands on by people to transfer their sins onto them before they were set free into the wilderness. And by the way, here's one, here's one other thing that's easy to miss. Why isn't God like making all of these enemies of Paul here drop dead where they stand? You ever wonder where God is in these moments where this man is suffering, he's being beaten almost to the point of death, dragged away, humiliated, he's being carried like a baby almost by these soldiers? I mean, it's humiliating, it's painful. God, I'll, I'll say it, that was a question, let me just say it. God isn't causing all of Paul's enemies to drop dead right in front of them. Why is that? Why aren't we dropping dead right here where I stand and you guys sit? Why aren't we we falling asleep? Why aren't we dying? We certainly deserve it. But one thing you see here, especially when you picture Paul as being like Christ, and if you know Christ's passion, you know that Jesus went through something very similar, right? He was tied up. He was unjustly accused. He was brought before a mob that were losing their minds over wanting to kill him. This is meant to remind us and hearken us back in the story to Christ's. But here's what this means. Through Christ's death, which Paul reminds us of here, God was and is patient with us. He's not giving us what we deserve. In Christ, we don't get what we deserve. Isn't that amazing news? in Christ we don't it's unfair it's unfair love this is why it's offensive because all of our medals don't mean anything anymore but it's the best news ever because we realize oh my gosh I actually deserve way worse than I'm getting i deserve an eternal hell but instead i get to be called an adopted son of god himself through what jesus did for me and i have eternal life on this new earth and In the future, there will be no more pain or death or crying or shame or pain ever again. And so I, I think with a text like this, we need to stand in the sheer awe of the injustice here, the scandal that it is, and then let this point you back to Christ and think that's what happened there. If it happened here with Paul, how much more with Christ? God, through Jesus, went to war against our sin and not us. That's what makes this gospel thing so amazing. God goes to war against our sin, against our rebellion, but he spares us. And the way he's able to do that is by becoming human and substituting himself for us. And that's why all these people are going home this night to have dinner with their families, whereas Paul's in pr- chained up somewhere. Like, where's, where's the fairness there? All right. last word here is when we look at this then through this lens, whenever James says to Paul, pay their expenses, it's not really James saying this to Paul alone, but it's also God saying this to Jesus. This is what what makes this so cool is is you look at this with fresh eyes. I mean, a lot of these Jewish Christians, I mean, these are people that Christ died for. They are immature. They have bad theology. They're sinners. And James is like, go pay their expenses. Um, In a way, that's a great little three-word depiction of what the gospel is. Is the Trinity working forever past on how are we going to save these people, this creation we love dearly? How are we going to restore it? And it's, almost, it's, it's like within the Trinity we have this exchange where the Father says to the Son, go and pay their expenses, pay their debts. You know, isn't that, isn't that just amazing and reassuring to think that Forever past, God was scheming to save you with his son. Planning, scheming, perfectly. And it's happening right now in this very room. Like you can't, no one can stop it. No one can thwart it. God will accomplish what he intends. His word always goes out, right? And the word is who? Jesus. Whenever the word goes out, it accomplishes what? He sends it out to do. The the Old Testament says, but Christ is the fulfillment of that. He is the word. So when Christ is sent out, he accomplishes it, and it never changes. And so whatever you guys have done, wherever you're at, wherever you're at, whatever your hang-up is, your barrier, your doubts, your fears, your shame, your guilt, we're all rebels. This is what God says to Christ on our behalf, and this is how it whispers him, His name to us believe this and you'll be saved wherever we are believe that christ has paid our debts on the cross and we will be saved and in love going back to the first part of today in love demonstrate that to other believers but don't don't jump over don't leapfrog over the main part of this which is the offense the beautiful offense of the gospel that climaxes in the high priestly and sacrificial work of our Savior, who paid our debts because he loved us to, to hell and back. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word uh, in, in, your, in your word. Thanks, God, for your gospel. Um, Father, we, I, I pray for offended, uh, prideful hearts like mine. Um, God, please overcome that through, through your grace. May, may love win, may, may love overtake. May may love be stronger than our resistance, your love stronger than our resistance of you because our resistance of you is very, very, very strong and we see that here in this passage. We are like the mob. We are like the offended Jews. That's us in the story. and We are, we are less like Paul than like the mob. I mean, the, the mob is, uh, is us and, and Paul is Christ. Father, thank you for treating us like we don't deserve, like we are unfairly saved because Christ was unfairly crucified. Um, God, help us to just bask in that scandal and never lose sight of the beauty of that and never replace the, the centerpiece, the position that it takes in the Christian faith with something else. It will always be that, whether people believe that or not. It's been set. It's done. Christianity is the blood and body of Jesus and all the old laws have been passed up by something much better because now you purify us. And we don't have to wash ourselves anymore. Uh, Praise be to God. In your name we pray. Amen.